Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to the Realist Podcast in the Donia, the three Muslims, minus one Muslim plus another Muslim. We're joined here with Dr. Steph Karras after a couple months now. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum wabarakatuh. Indeed, it has been a long time. Alhamdulillah, we've been busy, both of us. Um, summer has come, so alhamdulillah, the whole issue with Corona has calmed down a bit. We can travel again, which is extremely important for me at this moment um, in order to introduce my work and uh, to be able to sell uh, my, 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 my books and my DVDs and everything. So it was quite important. This, 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 this break in between was very important, but I'm still back. I mean, I am on social media as well, and um, I've done quite some workshops in the past. Um, and uh, we have actually started being extremely busy with workshops online nowadays. Um, seeing that when we started them uh, during Corona times, during the strong peak of Corona, actually, um, we got a lot of interest from North America, from Australia, and we are now trying to juggle the times when to put them out there to be Australian and American friendly, which is extremely difficult, believe me. It's nearly impossible, actually. <laughs> but we're working on it still, alhamdulillah. 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 So for some of our newer viewers... A lot of them should know you because of their, you know, aware of history and they like history. But the ones that don't really, you know, have familiarity with who you are, give like a quick little summary of anything they want to know. First of all, um, it has been, I think, already three times I've been on the three Muslims. Alhamdulillah, I had the chance to meet also the third Muslim brother, mashallah. Um, and uh, we had some excellent uh, discussions with regards to my work. What is my work? I'm a historian. Um, my background is actually I have a PhD in political science as well as in linguistics, languages. I speak several languages and I've been uh, traveling throughout the world for the last three, four years, introducing um, especially my latest book, which is the Islamic history of Europe. I'm trying to wake up people, youngsters as well as older people, actually, about the influence that Islam has had on the West Western education, the Western system, Islam in Europe, in North America, in the Caribbean, in Australia, in Africa. What does it mean? How did Islam really spread? Is it really true that it was spread by the sword? Or is it just another myth like many others with regards to Islam and the Muslims? Um, myself, I'm of Greek origin, grew up in Germany. I'm living in the UK at the moment. Been very busy with the development of Islam in Europe. Um, also, the recent development, especially what shook me a lot was the uh, war in the 1990s, uh, the breakup of Yugoslavia, a country which was known as Yugoslavia, which nowadays is split into six or seven entities, um, out of them actually three or four mainly Muslim ones. And this is something that uh, pushed me even further to be uh, to expand more into on, on, on the subject of Islam in the West, Islam in Europe, Islam in North America and Australia. How did it really spread and how come that we have nowadays Muslims living in Europe? We have Muslim countries in Europe, in the Balkan Peninsula. How come that Islam was actually in America and in Australia long before the Europeans arrived there? So this is just a very rough idea of my work, basically. Mashallah. And and look at Dr. Seth Kears. Tell me this man doesn't look good today. Of course, bro. That's <laughs> the first thing I noticed, bro. Mashallah. It's 30 mashallah. degrees, mashallah. So we have to enjoy this weather. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> we have to enjoy. How is it over there? Uh, in North Carolina right now, it's it's all right. It's all right. Are you in North Carolina at the moment? Okay. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Good weather, yeah? Excellent. Yeah, it's, 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 okay. it's been raining a lot for the last couple of days. 
Really? Oh, my goodness. We have had a wonderful, wonderful weather. You know, it's like Trevor Noah keeps saying that 10 days of summer in the UK. So we're enjoying the 10 days of summer in the UK. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> for having me on, on, on the program again. I think um, I would like to um, mention something extremely important, actually, today. Um, in the last couple of weeks and months, um, I have had the chance to read a lot of emails a lot of people have contacted me with regards to um, the old new idea coming up again, making Hijra, leaving the West for the East. Problem is, what does that mean? The definitions of both are extremely important. What is the West? What is the East? What is the Muslim world? Um, where can we go to? Where can we really make Hijra? What does it mean, the idea of Hijra? Is it something we should really pursue nowadays as Muslims living in the West? Um, again, what does this definition, what is the definition of West again? And how clear is it? Is, there, is it black and white? It's obviously not. Um, and I have been busy really a lot in the last couple of weeks and months with this, these questions. And for myself, I mean, the question never stopped. I myself tried to make Hijra to leave the UK and leave Europe three times. The last time, actually, I went back to my original home country where I thought that things would be better simply because I'm Greek, so I go back to Greece. But let me start with my first uh, uh, attempt to leave Europe. I um, was very naive that time when I started. It was around 20 years ago, and I had hoped that the Muslims in the Muslim world would um, receive us with open arms and would just wait for us to come. European Muslims, educated people, you know, they want the deen, they come to us. That's what I thought they would think. But that's absolutely not the case. That's not at all the way the, the Muslims and the Arabs and the Arab world thinks, thinks of us. Rather, the opposite, I would say. I remember that when I had a job in Saudi Arabia, I was living in Jeddah for a year. Um, I remember how some of my colleagues who except one, they all came from, 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 from the original Muslim world, coming from Egypt, from, from the Emirates, uh, or from other Muslim countries, Jordan, Palestinians, and so on. And they actually, when the time for Salah came, you will not believe it, but many of them um, had an excuse that they needed to go to the toilet or they needed, you know, in Saudi Arabia, it's like this, when the time for Salah is there, it's officially announced, the Adhan is in the school, I was working for a school, and we all uh, got, get it, were getting ready to, 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 to do the congregational prayer, and I was one of the first ones getting up, making wudu and leaving and asking my colleagues, guys, do you have wudu, are you coming? And uh, you will not believe it, but most of them were trying to avoid the Salah and trying to avoid speaking to me because they saw in me an extreme Muslim, a radical one. And we're talking about Muslims at the moment, yeah? A radical one who is trying to get them uh, out of their comfort zone to get them to pray. Imagine that. The European Greek Muslim is trying to get these born Muslims to pray. Um, so that was the first disappointment already. And that didn't go down well, neither with them nor with me. So I was actually, it, we ended up in arguments and, and, and fights. I was a very, I am a hothead actually, but with regards to Islam, I did not want to discuss this with Muslims. I mean that I had to have discussions 
I did not see myself being in, in a position, leaving the West to come to the Muslim world and to my Muslim brothers and sisters to have to discuss issues of the Salah, the importance of the Salah, which I would have had to discuss with non-Muslims in the West. And that's why I left. So that was a massive disappointment. I don't know if you can understand that. I think maybe you can understand that. I think many others would not really see the point. Um, so that was my encounter in Saudi Arabia, very close to my encounter later in Dubai. The second time I went to Dubai to the Emirates and I had, I was a bit more prepared and see, knowing the Emirates already from before, I did not expect Sahaba walking on the street, uh, whereas I expected them in, in Saudi, which did not happen, obviously. So the same in Emirates, I saw that there were normal Arabs uh, walking outside or Muslims who cared as much for the deen as many Muslims care here in the West for the deen. Uh, although they could hear Adhan, although they were right next to a masjid, although whatever they would, you would rather see them, you know, uh, smoking the nargile rather than going to the next door masjid. Um, so uh, the third time I thought, okay, let me really make hijra to my home country where we have Muslims, alhamdulillah, not necessarily where my parents have built a house, so not necessarily where I was planning to go with my family, uh, also for reasons of not having to pay rent. And uh, yeah, alhamdulillah, it felt good. I was there for a year. I must really say, I must admit that it felt the best of all three times. I must admit, although I was not in a, non I was not in a Muslim environment, but I felt I was somewhere back home, okay? I really felt that. I was in my father's village, and we were welcome, although my wife comes from a totally different country, totally different background, everything. I myself am a Muslim and I did not hide it. But for them, it was really, I was just one of them. And they did not just discuss this deen. You know, that's something I had learned from my travels. Just don't leave them. Just do not discuss the issue of Islam. Everything else is fine. It was fine indeed. And it was all accepted. Everything I, I could have read, it was really, I must really admit, it was the best time I've had of all the three times that we tried, we attempted to make hijrah. In the end, um, the problem was financially then. I mean, that was the time when Greece really went down, <laughs> down the wrong side. You know, it was uh, 2009, 2010, when the big crisis hit Greece, exactly that time. And I decided, I saw that something was coming towards us and I decided to take my children. And instead of leaving towards Athens, we were planning to go originally towards the capital, we decided to come back to the UK again. Um, so all this I'm telling you basically, it's not just for you too. It is something that the audience should hear, I think, because many have attempted the same. Many have tried to go to make hijra, to go to the Muslim world and uh, try to raise their children and thinking that actually their children would have a better environment in the Muslim or Arab world, avoiding anything that they're leaving behind, basically the fitna of Europe and North America. But I've encountered in uh, Saudi, in Emirates, in Turkey, in Morocco, in Algeria, in Egypt, wherever I've been, I've seen children having less respect <laughs> for the deen or many children having less respect for the deen than they would have in the West. I know many Muslim children here, mashallah, who I respect a lot. And I know that the madrasas here are full. I know that despite the problems that we might have here in the West, whatever this might be, again, we have to define this, 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 this word again. This term is very important because people simply come up with black and white. It's West and East. The East 
being the Muslim world, which is not at all the case, the West being all the non-Muslim fitna issues. It's not that easy, guys. It's not black and white. Okay, and this is something that I've experienced in my last 25 to 30 years of being a Muslim, of traveling around, being in Muslim countries, in many of them, in a huge number of them. We have more than 50 Muslim countries in the world. Um, they are as puzzled, and the people living in these countries are as puzzled as the people living in, in the so-called West. And again, now to find a definition, what is the West? I mean, is the West really only North America? or the Americas, North and South America, Europe. In Europe, we have four Muslim countries, okay? In Europe, we have a massive amount of Muslim minorities living and thriving in certain countries. In other, Muslim, in other countries in Europe, we have Muslim minorities being threatened and feeling alienated without a doubt. But again, in the same continent of Europe, where we have more than 50 countries, we have countries such as Sweden, we have countries such as the UK, countries such as Germany, Italy, and Greece. Very different countries. I mean, they could have all been in different continents. That's how different they are. It is not the same. It's not the same living in Greece as living in Sweden. It is not the same living in the UK as living in Germany. And I've experienced all of them. So as a Muslim... I mean, the first thing, first things first, actually, living as a foreigner in a foreign country is always bad. It's always something that makes you feel you're a foreigner. That's it. So you will, you never feel at home, actually, because you have to really, well, that, that was the reason what triggered, that, that was the idea that I had when I went to Greece. I thought, okay, forget the Islamic element. I want to feel somewhere being home. And as I said before, I did feel I was home. Although I grew up in Germany, I have a very German and a very English education, but still I felt that Greek people are closer to me than German people or British people or French people or Italian people are. So that in itself, I did feel, I did feel being home in Greece rather than being in Germany or the UK. No doubt about it. Now the Islamic element of course came to it. There was no masjid. I was in a, in a village in the Northwest of Greece, where there was no Muslims. The only Muslims there were some immigrants who had to pray somewhere hidden. I don't even know where they prayed, not even in my city where I was, there were no Muslims, there was no masjid as far as I know. But there was another city, a bigger city further away around an hour drive from my city where I met some immigrant Muslims from Pakistan and from other parts of the world. And they told me that they had a, a mosque somewhere hidden. I don't know what it was. I really couldn't find out. I don't know what, what was going on there. A very sad situation, honestly, for a Muslim in that part of the world. So that, again, gave me another blow, of course. It was something that I was not happy about. And I was also thinking, you want to really raise your children, Muslim children, in an environment where you might feel more welcome as a Greek, but as a Muslim, you know, in that part of Greece, there was nothing. Whereas I we decided to go to Athens, to the capital, where there are many Muslims, there are many mosques, there is still things happening, the Islamic elements, the Islamic elements are there as much as they can be in, in a country which is non-Muslim. Um, but in the end, we decided to come to the UK. And I think it was a good decision. Uh, although still, I mean, I must say, I don't feel welcome here 100%, okay? I don't feel 100% British. You know, what does it mean being British? That's another question. Again, the British themselves cannot answer that. 
What does it mean being American? I mean, what are British values? What are American values? What are German values? What does this all mean? So in the end, the conclusion is for all of us, I think, after 30 years of traveling, having tried to the attempts of, of, of the failed attempts of Hijra, um, trying to live in, a, in, in the Muslim world and trying to establish myself and my family and my, my children, raising them in the Muslim world, I've realized that you can raise your children in the West, depending on where you are in the West. Now, again, it is not the same living in Greece as it is not the same living in the UK, in Germany, Sweden, in the US and within the US again, it's different living in Chicago, in New York or in Ohio, you know? So there are differences. You have to choose and according to the definition of Hijra, if you look it up, for example, and I've done my homework actually the last couple of weeks and indeed uh, uh, scholars have come to the conclusion to give you actually the idea of Hijra is not just moving from one non-Muslim country to a Muslim country and that's it. Within the same non-Muslim country, if you move from one city or village to another city or another and a, a city at all, which gives you a more Islamic outlook and gives you an Islamic education for your children and the possibility of raising your children and yourself being feeling secure and feeling in an Islamic environment, being close to a masjid or whatever it is, your Islamic community, that in itself is already considered hijra. So we have had people here coming from the countryside, moving over to London, moving over to East London. In East London, we have a very big Muslim community, okay? Moving from London to Birmingham. Birmingham has more than 20% Muslims. The city of Birmingham itself has a more than 20% Muslims. We have certain areas where we just have Muslims, okay? So that in itself is again considered hijra. So I've come to this, I'm, I'm giving you all this, these, these, these ideas here simply because I would like to, I'm answering actually all the questions. I'm replying to the questions that I've received in the last couple of weeks and months via email or um, um, simply um, um, messages that they were written to me. And I think it's quite important for our audience here to um, get a little bit an, an idea of somebody who has tried in the last 30 years to make Hijra, who has come to conclusion to say, yes, it is not ideal living here, but it's not ideal living in Saudi Arabia either. And it's not ideal living in Morocco or whatever else you decide to go. Um, open your eyes, be careful. People down there can really, they don't care about you practicing Muslim from the West with a naive background and understanding, trying to live somewhere in the countries where they don't want to be because they rather would like to be in New York, in Chicago or the UK. Then, and you are going to the countries where they, where they want to leave. They want to leave these countries because they think it's better living in a country somewhere in the West, in Europe or in North America, simply because of the financial um, uh, benefits that you might get. And again, that's something we, we cannot underestimate. It is not nothing living in a country where you get child benefit for having children, okay? Which in itself is not a non-Muslim invention. It's not something European, German, British, uh, French, whatever. It is something that actually originates in the Muslim world. It comes from the time of the Khilafah Rashidin. <laughs> child benefit is not an invention from the West. So subhanAllah, so we praising them for that. And we are trying to actually um, improve our lifestyle without a doubt, that's what we should do. 
but we're not thinking further. We're not looking further. And this is the point that I've made that I want to make actually with this show today, that through my experience of the last 30 years, I've come to the point to say, let's make the best out of where we are and what we are. Um, yes, always striving for the best and always trying to give your children and yourself the best education. But let's look at education in the West and let's see the opportunities we have. I've had the chance to actually sell my books, the Islamic history in Europe, rather in Europe, you know, amongst the non-Muslims and amongst the Muslims who grow up as second and third generation here, who are lost, who are trying to find their identity, then amongst the Muslims somewhere in other parts of the Muslim world, because they don't see that as important, okay? Whereas our second, third, fourth generation European Muslims, American Muslims understand the uh, issue of identity search, of trying to find yourself within this type of society, secular or non-Muslim society, and trying to actually uh, raise yourself and your children with uh, certain values which uh, should actually be uh, also Western values, should be values for families living in the West as well. These are not just values for us Muslims. I mean, love your father and your mother, um, 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 respect for your father and your mother, for the elders, um, love your wife, uh, raise your children, uh, giving them morals. These are all um, uh, values that anybody in the West would agree to. So um, this is my very long intro and prelude actually. And Bismillah, just, just shoot with some questions if you have both of you, so that we can come back into this topic, actually, mashallah. So would you say it's a, it's a case of the grass is not green on the other side type deal? Absolutely. SubhanAllah. Yeah. You actually yeah. hit it on the spot. That's exactly what I'm saying, yes. And yes. a question. How important do you think it is to have this community of... Uh, other practicing Muslims. Like, do you not think that um, you, yourself, and your family uh, really being firm in the deen is uh, more than enough? Or do you feel like that community is something that can take it to the next level? Um, having, living in a certain part of the world um, doesn't mean that you, you should not create a community. That's, it. That, that's the next step. You live somewhere, that's what you do. You work for your family, you, work, you earn your living, that's right. But the next step is actually creating a community wherever you are. And even if you're living in the, in, in the Muslim world, you realize that you also have to create your community. Do not think that just because you decide as a Muslim to move to Saudi Arabia, to Morocco, to Algeria, to whatever, that suddenly all these Muslims, millions of Muslims will welcome you and you have a family of 20 million Muslims surrounding you and welcoming you on Eid. No, during Eid, they go to their family. Where do you go? You have no family. Your family is your family. That's, you know, among, you know that's, that's what you're carrying with you every day. That is your family. So do not expect any Muslims out in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia to open their doors and their houses to you just because you are a Muslim coming from the West. No, they don't even think further. They don't even think that you don't have a family to go to. The only family you have is you and your wife and children. That's it. You don't have to go to your parents because your parents are not Muslims most of the times. Okay? So <laughs> that, that, that's something they don't think about. And they're not being told. 
It's something that we mentioned some time ago. Remember during Ramadan when I was on the show and I mentioned the issue, don't forget during Iftar, your brothers and sisters who really suffer at this moment. It's like going for the prayer and basically um, going back home again, <laughs> having bought some sweets maybe. If you have children, at least you can enjoy the children or the children enjoy you, whatever. Maybe watching a movie together, a family movie. That's basically all we do, right? Because there is nobody and nothing else we can do in the West. So, and don't expect, um, oh, sorry, I just got you. Okay. Don't expect uh, the uh, Muslims in that part of the world to understand you because for them, they've taken it for granted. They've taken the Adhan for granted. The first time I heard Adhan, I was in Turkey. I started crying. The first time I went into a masjid, again, it was in Turkey. I fell down and just prostrated. And people will look at me like, what's wrong with him? <laughs> so, you know, they take it for granted. We have to understand that. That these people there, hearing the Adhan five times a day, seeing the magnificent mosques on a daily basis while they're walking home, school, or away from them, you know, they consider that they take this for granted. And we need to finally wake up. We Muslims in the West, now we need to create our community, wherever we are. So coming back to your question, we need to create our community. We will have to create our community in order to get our children again, familiarize them with other Muslims, of course. What are you going to do? You cannot lock yourself up at home and say, you know, the others are living somewhere miles away. No, you need to get your children to uh, come in contact with other Muslim children as well. You need to get them to the community. Let's call it the community, meaning other Muslims who uh, share the deen with you. You need to take your children to the masjid. You need to go to the mosque as much as you can. And uh, the worst thing you could really do is living in the West and living isolated from the Muslim community. I guarantee you that's the end and the death of your children and of your Islam. It's gonna be just you dying as the only Muslim praying, you know? So no, yes, rather yes, we have to create our community wherever we are. Be it in a Muslim or non-Muslim world. Yes. Bro, I had something on my mind that I wanted to share. So Please. when you were mentioning that, it's oftentimes the Muslims that weren't even by your side. It reminded me of when we started this podcast, right? Anha's down, my family's down, friends are down, they're supporting the cause, right? I've extended family, because I'm from Bangladesh, right? I've extended family finding out about my podcast and they're like, yo, uh, they're, they're like calling my parents, right? They're like, hey, we heard uh, if I had started an Islamic podcast. Like, you know what happens to, to a lot of youth, right? When they're like in their early adult years and they start, you know, becoming more radical. And mm. then I'm like, bro, are you, are, you, are you serious, bro? Like, are you literally serious, bro? And it's like, it reminded me of a lot of uh, people I know back home in Bangladesh. They start YouTube, like Dawah channels and all that. And you could tell them anything. You could tell your parents, you could tell family, oh, I'm starting this channel. I'm starting a cooking channel. I'm starting this. I'm starting a vlog channel. As soon as you bring Islam into it yeah. or you're extreme, what happened? Yeah. What happened to you? Yeah. You have problems. Can we help you? Is there something? Yeah. Um, it's uh, subhanAllah. You're absolutely right. Fayyad. I mean, this is something that I've experienced with friends of mine who have a Muslim background. Right. Um, and it's typical. I mean, they seem to have bigger problems with their parents than we have. I mean, our parents have accepted now, or my parents have now accepted, okay, I'm a Muslim. He's anyway gone. That's it. Whatever he does, he does. But it seems like uh, born Muslim parents 
it seems like they're trying it. I mean, continuously to get you off the dean. And um, for them, it seems like it's the end of the world when they see their daughter coming back with a hijab. So not leaving with a hijab, but coming back with a hijab. So they know their daughter because they never educated their daughter Islamically. For them, it's important rather that daughter is a, becomes a successful lawyer or a successful doctor. That is a success in their, in their, in their eyes. But if their daughter covers up, suddenly she becomes extreme. You're putting problems in your way. You're, you're making it difficult for your sister. You're making it difficult. That's what they tell the own, the own parents. I remember a case of a Muslim sister, mashallah, who, believe it or not, she was from France, very difficult country, of course, to be from. And I met her and her husband in Istanbul, in Turkey. And she was covered, everything normal as I expected, right? But she told my wife, she told us we were going out. We had some days together in Istanbul. Great, great time, mashallah. We met these brothers and sisters and it was really fine from France. And she was telling us, for example, she said, when I go back to France and they come and pick us up from the airport, I have to take, remove my hijab. I said, what? She said, yes. Not because of the French who make it as difficult as possible, because of my parents, she says. And they were of Algerian origin. So... SubhanAllah, and these are the things that really disappoint a, a new Muslim entering the deen. You have to really make sure when you enter the deen, you enter the deen for the deen and not for a, a wife you want to have or for a friend you want to do something good or a favor you want to have. No, 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 no. You enter the deen for the deen. Do never do it for the Muslims. Never do it for the Muslims. You know? And I remember how Hamza, uh, Yusuf Islam, actually, you all know Yusuf Islam, right? The, Cat, Cat Stevens, the singer Cat Stevens in the 70s, who became Muslim, he used to live in London. I met him actually in London. He's of Cypriot origin, Greek Cypriot origin. Actually, he's of Greek origin like me, but his um, stepmother was Cypriot as far as I understood. So, and I spoke to him, I met him twice actually in London. And this quote, everybody knows, you know, I'm happy that I met Islam before I met the Muslims, okay? This is sad. <clears throat> For a born Muslim, this is extremely sad. You know, that we have to say these things. I agree fully. I agree 200% with what he said. I'm also happy that I met Islam. I understood Islam before I came across Muslims. Although I did, <laughs> I, I grew up with Muslims. Uh, I had Turkish students who were together with me. My, my, my I mean, my peers in, in class. I grew up with Turkish, Turkish, Turkish uh, guys and I had good friends. And, but we never spoke about Islam because they themselves never prayed. They never, never didn't, didn't know anything about Islam. So um, how pathetic is that, that you grow up with Muslims, but you have never heard of Islam. You don't know anything about Islam. Okay. And the very same people are, by the, by, by the way, and I want to mention that as well. One of these people from that time who we were close, we we're going out, discourse parties and everything. This very same person I met some years back when I was back in Germany, I met him on the street and I was like, man, what's happening? What's going on? He saw me and he realized, obviously, you know, I've become extreme. I'm having a beard and all this stuff. So um, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, you're still Muslim. I said, yeah, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. I, I, you know, alhamdulillah, yes, of course I'm Muslim. I said, are you? <laughs> he was like, of course I'm a Turk. Listen to the, 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 the answer. I'm Turkish, so I'm Muslim. Said, no, 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 brother. You see, you haven't understood. That's exactly what I'm talking about. You're not Muslim because you are Turkish. You're a Muslim because you're Muslim, because you understood the deen. 
you're not Muslim because you're Turkish or Arab or whatever you are. No, no. And this very same person asked me to teach him how to make wudu, believe it or not. He asked yeah. a Greek guy how to teach him how to make wudu. So you're this is something. Sorry? And you're a revert. <laughs> not only this, I'm Greek. There's a Turkish guy asking a Greek guy, you know, and you know the hostility and animosity between mm -hmm. the Greeks and the Turks. And I'm a Greek Muslim, you know, and I have to teach the Turkish Muslim who actually should come to me. You know, I have to teach him how to make wudu. I asked him, bro, you know, what about your father? How's he doing? He had a head, heart issue and everything. Yeah, yeah, indeed, he said. He is struggling with his heart. What does he do every Friday? Instead of going to the masjid, he actually sits in front of a TV, 220 Turkish TV channels he has. And he goes from one TV channel to the other. You know, it's a, it's a common thing in Germany that you have amongst Turkish guest workers, as they were called at that time, that you have them now totally <clears throat> into their Turkish series, into their Turkish channels, into the going back home type of mentality, you know, after having been in Germany for 40, 50 years, having raised their children and their grandchildren in, in Germany and still having this back home mentality and not looking at all that what they miss actually is rather Islam than being Turkish or whatever this might be. So his father was zapping from one program to a Turkish program to the other, not having shown his child how to make wudu or actually how to perform a salah. Imagine that. So much about born Muslims and so much about the disappointment that you can have with people of come who have not entered the deen out of their own will. They just happen to be Muslims because their parents come from a certain area which happen to be Muslim. Because when before it became Islamic, by the way, it was not. Before these first Muslims in Turkey became Muslims, they were not. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is again something we don't realize that, you know, and these people don't realize that. And I've had in lectures already um, people breaking down in front of me after I've spoken the way I spoke, although it might seem harsh. But I think sometimes you need to wake them up in that way. You need to shake them up. And it might, again, as I said, it might seem harsh and sound harsh. And some people took it the wrong way. But in general, I think I um, have shaken up people. And I think that's what I want to do with my lectures as well. Alhamdulillah. So you don't let the comments get to you? And uh, no, I hope. <laughs> no, no, not really. No, <laughs> no, no. Mm. I think that um, rather the, 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 the 10 people that's going to be uh, annoyed and irritated will be balanced out with 100 people who will not be, who will be woken up, inshallah, and shaken up. That's what I believe and hope. Inshallah. Inshallah. I mean, when it's called Allah, call Rasul, it really doesn't matter who, who says what, right? That's the world we live in. We can't change our message to, to fit today's narrative. There is no doubt about it. We have to be diplomatic. Let's call this, mm -hmm. I mean, big word now here. You know, I mean... Our parents are like this. I myself would tell my children now, be diplomatic the way you come out and you say things. I mean, we have to, as Muslims nowadays, justify our deen. We have to nowadays come out there and be diplomatic with regards to the LGBTQ community, for example. We have to be diplomatic, right? Now, what does that mean? That we cannot really say openly what we really believe. You cannot. And, on the, and then they are telling you, you're living in a democratic society. You're living in a society where you can, there's a freedom of, there's free speech, right? That's the idea. The idea is that we can uh, utter our opinion freely. Can we? That's a big question mark I put behind it. With regards to certain issues and certain people, we cannot. We cannot. 
There's hypocrisy. You can you can let women wear what they want, but now in the European Union, they ban hijab in the workplace, right? They say that yes, absolutely, and and an employer can actually um, clearly state the reason of not employing somebody simply because they're wearing a job. Yes, they can do that. Yes, absolutely. And this is another disgrace with regards to the European Union, you know? And this is something that, you know, if I look back the time of Brexit in the UK, for example, when they started going for the idea of Brexit, we were very upset as Europeans living in the UK. Of course, it has affected us directly, of course. But I can, uh, they didn't do it, of course, for Islamic reasons. But as a Muslim, I can fully understand and rather support the idea of Brexit at this moment. Because in Britain, for example, the laws have not changed and would not change at this moment as the wind does in the European Union, for example. You know, if you look at the European Muslims at this moment on the continent, um, they suffer more than we do in the UK. British Muslims, we couldn't have, made, have had it easier here, actually. Yeah, our women, we, there's never an issue. Uh, as a woman with a hijab, you might come across employers who would have a problem. But I'm very honest, I don't think it's going to be more than 10 to 20% mm. of employees, okay? Which means 80% would accept you with a hijab. Fine, then you move on. But it's the opposite on the continent. On the continent, in Germany, for example, the situation where I know very well in Germany, I know sisters who couldn't even be at the register because they were wearing a hijab. Can you explain the logic in there? I mean, the sister is working at the register, at the supermarket. What is the problem she's wearing or not wearing a hijab? What is the issue? You know, what is what does Tesco or Costco or whoever else, what do they ask that? What do they have to keep up? What kind of reputation is that? Neutral? They're saying in Germany, neutrality. So you are neutral because you tell a girl who's wearing a hijab to take the hijab off. That's neutral? I call this oppression. I'm sorry. That's for me the same than telling somebody uh, to actually wear the hijab. It's exactly the same thing. If I oppress my wife, telling her, my daughter, I tell her, you have to, you must wear hijab from now on because I tell you so. I'm your father, whoever. That's the same way of oppressing my daughter as the employer in Germany can now say, I want you to take the hijab off because we want to be neutral. We're in a neutral environment. Germany loves throwing around with this word, neutral. What does this mean? So neutrality means oppressing your wife who's wearing hijab, taking the hijab off forcefully. That's neutral? That's clearly taking sides for me. I don't see the neutrality there, I'm sorry. So it is a disgrace for the European Union and it is a disgrace for the Europeans to, to, to really react in such a way. Absolutely a disgrace. So for me, honestly, I fully understand the discussion that has flared up again with regards to Hydra and wanting to move away from Europe, especially. I fully understand that. But again, Europe is not all Europe is not the same. You know, living in Sweden is not the same like living in Greece or in Germany or in the UK. If you have a problem in Sweden, try to find another country within the European Union where you can live better. Italy has many positive sides. Spain has many positive sides. Um, you know, maybe even the Netherlands. You know, I've lived in Holland for a while. I know it has changed, but it is better than living in certain oppressive regimes such as in France or in Belgium, for example. Okay. So as much as you can, you, you move on, brothers. You move on. Okay, and try to move on within within the possibilities that you get and you you have and do not go crazy. Do not just grab your luggage as we did. Grab a bag, grab your 
two-year-old and say we're making hijra and going to whatever. That doesn't work that way. You know, keep your head in the game. Find out what you need. You want to make hijra? Become an English teacher. Okay, learn English. Do your CELTA, your Cambridge certificate. Go out to the Muslim world. They love you because you're teaching them something that they want to know, English. Now, you're fleeing English, but you are going with this English you're making a new life. You're building up your life in the Muslim world where you feel happier, maybe. Okay. And you have a you have an income. You cannot go and live in the Muslim world without an income, brothers. You cannot do that. So let's not be living in the dream world, you know? So let's be realistic. You want to do something. And I'm speaking to my English-speaking brothers and sisters, mashallah. The best thing that we have in the English-speaking world is the English language. Grab it, take it, become an English teacher, do your CELTA, your Cambridge certificate, and go and teach. It takes one month, a thousand pounds. Grab a thousand pounds together, go for one month, do your best, and become an English teacher with a Cambridge certificate, and go and work out in the Emirates, in, uh, in Saudi, in Qatar, in Kuwait. There are jobs out there for you. And you can, you can get a good payment, okay? And you can, inshallah, because you will have a good payment and you, have, you will have a, 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 a good life, actually, for your family. You can enjoy life in, in double ways. You know, you have your Islam and you have your financial uh, security. So that's what I'm, I'm, I'm really, my children now, mashallah, I mean, they don't want to become English teachers. But one thing that I told the older ones now, everybody who's above 18, one thing, my, very, my, my older one, he is into Islamic banking, mashallah. Okay, he's done Islamic banking, which is great for him. But I pushed him also to do his TEFL, his teaching English as a second language certificate. He did it online, mashallah. Okay, he sees the, the benefit he, get, he gets with that. Because with this certificate, he would rather get a job in, um, in the Emirates or in Dubai or in, or, in, or in Qatar or in Kuwait, rather than with Islamic banking. Let's be honest. They don't, they don't want Islamic banking, man. They don't want Islamic banking, actually. Exactly, exactly. You know, that's rather something for the West. You know, rather something for yourself to develop yourself and to do something on your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the same, my second younger one now, he's doing IT. Well, he's also busy with his TEFL, with his uh, uh, English degree. So that's what I, I, I really, my suggestion would be really, or my, my advice would be to anyone here. Yes, anyone who's living in the English speaking world knows English well enough. Please do your English certificate, degree. It doesn't take you longer than one month. You will not believe it. One month, 1,000 pounds, which is around $1,500, isn't it? Around, you know, do your CELTA, Cambridge certificate. Get qualified and certified by Cambridge as an English teacher, and you will, inshallah, find a job out there, okay? If this is your dream, you want to live in the Muslim world, then really become an English teacher. I'm sorry, baby, you might not like, not like teaching, but there's one dream that supports... Um, another dream maybe so so you know this is something I would, I would i that's my advice basically and that's what i tell people who speak english now somebody who doesn't speak good english or comes from 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 germany or from other parts of the world they have it more difficult now i know a german brother who has been you know for the last 10 years actually mashallah he has moved to um um he has moved to qatar mashallah and he's doing quite well there and he's an architect he's from germany and he's an architect Okay, so they want educated people down there. Okay, get an education from the West, get Western languages <laughs> and go down there and teach them or go down there and teach these people down there what they want from you, what you are running away from. Okay, no matter, do it.
<laughs> you know, you're running away from something. They want to come to, to that what you're running away to. Give it to them because that's your improvement. Save yourself and your family from the hellfire, Allah says in the Quran. He doesn't say save your community and your world and your land, your country and your people. Save yourself and your family from the hellfire. So save yourself and your family from hellfire. Okay? You don't need to look into the, the rest of the world, you know? So save yourself. That's it. That's that's basically the last thing that I have to say. If you can't save yourself, how are you going to save others, right? Sorry? If you can't save yourself, how are you going to save other people? Absolutely. I mean, start with yourself. Don't forget when you're on the plane, what do they say? Mm -hmm. If something happens, you have to wear your, the mask first yourself and then your, chi your child. Then you take care of your son or daughter. You have to wear it first yourself because if you don't wear it and you wear it your son, by the time that you have, have to have to wear yours, you're, you're dead. That's it. Fine. End of story. So let's be realistic. I think I really call it pragmatism and realism. I think Muslims have, have forgotten to be realistic nowadays. And I think our ancestors were actually quite realistic in the past, talking about history. If you look at our uh, ancestors in the past, you see them being very pragmatic and quite realistic. Okay, don't forget Rasulullah when they had prisoners of war, what did they do with them? he would actually give them their freedom if they taught the Muslims how to read and write, if they taught the Muslims another language, if they taught the Muslims, if they educate the Muslims, they would give them freedom. He would give them freedom, the non-Muslims, the non-Muslim prisoners of war. Subhanallah. Look, isn't, I mean, how much more pragmatic can somebody get? Isn't this pragmatism and realism? And nowadays we are flying on, on, on clouds. You know, we really think that, you know, we can go and find the Sahaba walking on the street in Jeddah. You know, no. No, that's not the way it is, you know. So well, let's wake up. And that's what I wanted to say, subhanAllah. And Zakalah for the opportunity that was given, really. I honestly believe that because of all the feedback that I got also in the questions in the past, um, I think it needed to be said. I mean, I keep saying that in my lectures. I keep saying that those are my workshops and to my audience, but I think it is important that other people who might not be my audience, um, um, I think they need to hear that too. Simply because of, this is an experience of a 50 year old Muslim who became Muslim 30 years ago, who has really traveled the world, knows a variety of languages, has come in contact with, I would dare say all people in the world, you know, and have come to a certain conclusion now, okay? I have a big family, alhamdulillah. I have seven children, mashallah. Okay. So again, this counts as much for me as it counts for everybody else. Save yourself and your family first. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how you think that you can save yourself. This is something that you as an individual have to figure out. For some, it might be hijra, so-called. It might be moving to a certain city, country or whatever, where it's better. For some, it might just simply be in the community where they are to improve that community or themselves in that community. Okay? Mm -hmm. Let's not, again, let's not dream, in, let's not live in dream world. Mm -hmm. Okay? Let's be realistic and pragmatic. And subhanAllah, I like how you put it in a very practical way and it's very realistic because I think that's something that everyone needs to hear nowadays, especially the people watching this channel, uh, the men and the women, because it's like we live in a time where resources are abundant. We live in a time where you could also make your own source of income online. But it's like if something were to happen, you need a skill. You need something that's tangible, like a trade that if 
the online were to drop, you can still provide for yourself and for the people you're with, your family or the community or something like that. But it's like, you get something online. Like, let's say me personally, I have a coaching business online. Alhamdulillah. Excellent. Great. I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. But if something would happen and then the internet would have dropped, Right. And there's no more electricity, like, okay, then, then what do I do? What if do I don't do? have a trade, if I don't have a skill. So I feel like what you just said, very important, was like English only takes one month, not a lot of money, gives you something that's like you have it in your belt, where it's like if something happens, you can whip it out yeah. and you can use it for that. So, yeah, I like, I like that. And I, I also think that if the people watching don't want to do English, well, then see it as like a gateway to open you up to something different. Like look at other skills as well, other trades that you can maybe invest your time and energy into to have something, you know, in the back, just in case something were to happen. Or if you want to make the hijra. Absolutely. I mean, based on this one, I hope I didn't interrupt you, brother, but you just no, said, you're good, you're good. I, I read, the, the issue of English was really that, it might be not everybody can be a teacher, but there is another thing. Again, what you just said, and I wanted to come back to that. Become a plumber. We all try nowadays, for example, subhanAllah, we all try to get our children. Myself, mashallah, my mother, she was pushing me towards uh, getting an education. I am, alhamdulillah, I am the person. I would be, I have two left hands, okay? So it is really difficult for somebody like me to become a plumber. But you know what? If I had to, I would have been able to become a plumber. I know that. So now, um, I know plumbers, for example, nowadays, you know how difficult it has been. The last three months we've been looking for a plumber. You will not believe. For the last three months, we have been looking for a good plumber, by the way. We've had people coming, coming and going. We had a problem with the shower. Now, you will not believe. You will, I don't know if you, you, you will not believe me. For three months, I've been looking for a plumber. Three months, we were washing with a bucket. So finally, we got the shower. Now it's all, we finally got a plumber. So I'm saying also, please, the skills you're talking about is not on teaching is one one example that I can give you, which I think will all cover us all because we all speak English. We are living in the English speaking mm -hmm. world. We all grew up with English language. Mashallah. We can we could theoretically do all that. But next to this one. Yes, there are some people who cannot do that. So there might be handy people out there who rather be plumbers, builders. We need these people. We really think the internet, you're absolutely right, Angel, is great what we are doing, all of us. We are all running internet businesses here now, all three of us. But what what if once we're all dependent on the internet what if there's no electric a big blackout what if once there's the end of internet what if once what do you do then what do you do then tell me okay so yes absolutely and again go back to history look at the sultans of the ottoman empire subhanallah the sultan there were sultans that were actually shoemakers believe it or not they knew how to make shoes. That was their skill. They had learned how to make school, uh, shoes. Shoemakers. And they were sultans. They were, most of them were even poets. Okay? They, were, they would use poets, or being, 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 being a poet, they would use it actually just as, 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 as a leisure, a, a pastime. Okay? It's something they would do in their pastime. However, however, some of them, you know, have become even famous for the poetry that they wrote. Okay, and there were some of them who were very handy. Subhanallah. So again, we are not learning from the past. 
Whenever I say learn from history, I, it's not an empty slogan that people use nowadays. You know, yeah, I keep asking nowadays, they all know me. You know, when I ask, when I go to a city, I know they've watched me. They have seen some of my lectures already. And when I ask, I know the answer. When I ask like, what, why is it, why is history important to us? So they will all say, you will hear nowadays the answer, yeah, to learn from our mistake. Great. They wouldn't do that three, four years ago, but nowadays they all do that. Okay. The problem is now, it's an empty, it has become an empty slogan. What does it really mean to you? Now, you might have heard it. You might have maybe heard me saying that. But what does it really mean to you now? What does it mean? What will you do with this knowledge? Yes, we have to learn. That's absolutely right. That's the answer. It's a correct answer. We have to learn from our mistakes. But don't make it an empty slogan. It should really mean something to you when you say that. Learn from our mistakes. Learn from the past. Just 20 years ago, the Bosnian War, I'm just reading something of Bosnian War again. I'm just reading about the breakup break of Yugoslavia. In the 1990s, between 1992 and 1995, the 11th of July again, we remembered the massacre of Srebrenica. We remembered the genocide that happened in, 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 in Bosnia. Now, who really remembered, to be very honest? It's a small circle of people. A small circle of people who, oh yeah, yeah, 1992, 1995. How many of us really know, still remember 1992 to 1995? How many of us really now know what happened? How many of us know how many people died during that war? How many of us know what the Muslims went through? You know, it, even, in, even in Bosnia nowadays, it's just put under the carpet. It's sweeped under the carpet. Just leave it. Let it go. Let it go. Why being reminded of it every time? Why? Because I'm not here to open your wounds. I, that's not the idea. My idea is, we have to never forget this. And I mean never forget. I'm not talking about some never forget this ending, you know, never forget ending story, you know, some kind of empty slogans again, which you will find. I was in the Gambia. I was in the Gambia and I went to the Slife Island there, for example. And it said, never forget. You know, what are you talking about? I had to laugh. I had to laugh. What are you talking about? Honestly? Honestly? The empty slogan that it said on the island, never forget. The same it says in Auschwitz. Never forget. Yeah. That's a nice slogan. It says it up there. But do we really follow this slogan? It has become an empty slogan. It's empty. There's nothing behind it anymore. Nothing. And a very good brother told me once, a Bosnian brother, he said, the best thing, I tell you, wallahi, he said, the best thing that happened to us Bosnians, he said, is the war. The war was the best thing that happened to us. And I looked at him and I was, I was shocked. For a moment, I was shocked, but I didn't understand what he meant. He said, we, our women did not know what the hijab was. They didn't even know how to spell hijab before the war. Our men had always seen the mosque from outside. They knew what they looked like, the minarets, the pointy Ottoman minarets. But they had never been inside a mosque. Imams knew Surat al-Fatiha. That was all they knew. Some of them didn't even. Subhanallah. So the best thing that happened to the Bosnians was the war. And that really shook them and woke them up, many of them. Although, if you hear nowadays again stories, I don't know, you know. I think we need a much bigger shakeup, an earthquake, okay. So, subhanallah, let us get the earthquake here now with a show maybe rather than with a real earthquake. Because may Allah really be on our side when something like this happens again. Because, you know, honestly... I, do, I don't think, and I've, I was asked recently when I was in Southampton again, do you believe something like this can happen again? 
I said, honestly, you asked me this question, this question that you asked me, this question that you doubted maybe in your question. I hear it, the doubt in, in, in the question. That in itself already shows me that, yes, it will happen again. Yes, it will happen again. Just the question and the doubt in the question tells me that it will happen again. You understand that? Shocking. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. So it's, it's not enough to know but we must do we must act on whatever it is that we know from the past and it's better to act before something happens because like that war that your uh, your friend was saying where you said that was the best thing that happened well why was it the best thing that happened well because the war forced everyone to start doing to start acting but it's like they could have done that before the war yeah you know so subhanallah and Jessica Lai, bro, that's it's oh, yeah. uh I hope it's I didn't, things that people need to know. Yeah, no, you're good, I, you're good. Honestly, everything yeah. you're saying is amazing. Um, for those that are gonna receive it, they're gonna receive it. For those that don't, and may Allah make it easy for them to receive Amen. it. But this is something practical, this is something real that I feel like everybody needs to get on because I if one of you know this quote, it's like a wise man. They say uh, wise men learn from other people's mistakes or something like that, right? I'm butchering it 100%. I'm butchering it. <laughs> Good, but yes. y- yeah. you understand. It's like, yes. look, we have the past. We have all these things that are available for us to see, like, what's been going on. And um, look, we have the Prophet, وسلم, who's literally telling us that it's all going to come to an end, like, the end times are going to happen when this happens, when this happens, when this happens. And, and subhanAllah, all these things that the Prophet Wasallam has said has been coming to fruition. So it's like, if that's not enough for you to start seeing like, ah, okay, I should probably bust down and start, you know, taking care of what I got to take care of, learning what I got to learn, doing what I got to do, then I don't know what is, you know? And I think it all coincides. Everything that we're saying here, it all coincides. So, yeah, man. Guys, if you made it this far, comment down below. Hashtag history series. Because a lot of people don't know that we started a history series a while back. But we've all been busy and we got a little bit caught up. But we intend to start that up again. So, I believe we made two or three episodes. So, we'll start with episode four, inshallah, very soon. Inshallah. Inshallah. Again, for whoever wants to know more about my work, stephcarries.com. And I think you're going to put it in the, in the link down. Link in the description, yeah. Exactly in the description, and uh, we have workshops every last, uh, every end, well, the last two weekends or the last weekend of the month, it will be in English, one in English, one in German, workshops which go back to the dynasties of Islam, they go back to our identity in the West, it's really like people believe it's just some kind of historical, you know, data that they're going to get, no, 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 it's, 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 it's really very, as we just spoke, it's very realistic, very pragmatic, and I want to come to solutions, I want to talk, the first workshop we started in January this year, actually, and it was with regards to identity in the West, what does it mean being a Muslim in North America, in Australia, in Europe, what does it actually mean? And we, um, in the workshop, we give them some, some, some case studies. We give them actually some ideas of, you know, um, um, uh, Muslims in America, the, the problems they face 
Uh, how long have there been Muslims in America, by the way? Uh, it's not something that just happened some, some years ago, decades ago, <laughs> centuries ago, actually. Um, the same in Europe and so on and so on. And then in the end, we come to, to, to the problems and we give you, inshallah, also uh, based on our experience and our ideas, we give you some solutions to that, you know? And some of them were mentioned today, actually, already. Um, and I believe that there are solutions. We cannot just talk about the topics uh, as many old men do in the cafes in Greece, for example. You see them sitting there, you know, and discussing the latest problems that they face with their uh, grandsons or grand, uh, granddaughters. Um, and oh, how bad, how, de how deep, how, how problematic and everything. Yeah, but what is the solution? We can discuss the issues. But we have to also discuss the solutions. We have to find solutions. So that's what we're doing, inshallah, with the workshops. So whoever wants to know more about it, come to stephcaris.com, find out when we have workshops and what we're discussing there. And again, as I said, it's not just some kind of, em kind of empty slogans or um, historical facts that we're discussing. No, out of history, we take the historical facts and the, 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 the ideas that we get from history and we implement them actually nowadays and we try to understand how we find solutions to the problems that we have nowadays based on the understanding of the past. So alhamdulillah, I really think that, um, again, I have to thank you, uh, the three Muslims for having invited me and we will go on inshallah, we will have some more of these programs inshallah. It was, I hope it was a, a shake to wake up today um, a bit more pragmatic and realistic, uh, more than I no normally am. But I think it, it needs to happen. Once in a while, it just needs to happen. It needs to be there. 100%. Why, yeah, Habibi. All right, guys, until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wassalam.